2: Plan your adventure today at VisitspaceCoast.com.
1: Hi, I'm Paul Dennett. Welcome to another Dennett's Deep Dive The Rise and Rise of Bill O'Reilly, Part 1, 1926. Bill O'Reilly was one of the greatest bowlers of all time. Upon his death at age 86 in 1992, Bradman declared O'Reilly the best bowler he'd ever faced or seen. And in his obituary in Wisden, Gideon Haig said O'Reilly was probably the greatest spin bowler the game has ever produced. The splendour of O'Reilly's test career is well documented and well worth reading, but that's not what these shows are about. Instead, they're going to be about Bill O'Reilly's extraordinary and improbable rise to test cricket, because just before he turned 21, although he loved the sport, Bill had never played a game of grade cricket or even contemplated doing so. When he finally decided to give grade cricket a try, after being persuaded to by friends, O'Reilly's rise to the top was stunning, but. Just after playing his first Sheffield Shield game, Bill was banished to the bush by his employer, the New South Wales Department of Education. His promising cricket career seemed over. When he was finally allowed to return to Sydney, three years had passed and he was a nobody once again. But Bill rose another time, this time all the way to the Australian Test side and to becoming the best bowler in the world. This series of podcasts is also, unavoidably, a story of the intertwining of the early careers of O'Reilly and Don Bradman. Off the field, the two champions had little in common and not much affection for each other. On the field, they had nothing but respect and mutual admiration. All in all, it's a fascinating story, and one I've thoroughly enjoyed researching. I hope you enjoy it too. Here's The Rise and Rise of Bill O'Reilly, Part 1, 1926. As he sat on the train... 20-year-old Bill O'Reilly was happy and contented. He was returning to his hometown for the summer, his time at Teachers College in Sydney completed. It had been a wasted two years, in Bill's opinion, pointless theory delivered by lecturers with no real-world classroom teaching experience, the type who would be eaten alive by a class of 40 unruly kids. Nevertheless, Bill had had fun, he'd made friends, had excelled in athletics and had bowled very successfully in the Moore Park Saturday morning cricket competition. Now he was on his way home to Wingerlow, 160 kilometres southwest of Sydney, to family, holidays, and sunshine. Before he'd head back to Sydney, this time to a proper job as a schoolteacher, a challenge he was looking forward to. Life was good. The steam train pulled into Bowral, about 50 kilometres from home. Suddenly Bill was snapped out of his reverie. Was someone calling his name? Bill O'Reilly! Bill jumped up and stuck his head out of the window and saw the station master from his hometown of Wingerlow on the platform. Here I am, he said. Grab your bag and get out! Bill was informed Wingerlow were about to play Bowrel in cricket and that he was required. Delighted, Bill jumped off the train and into a 1918 Model T Ford truck and was taken to Boweral Oval. On the way, he learned his bowling was going to be needed to combat a young phenomenon from the Boweral side. It was a name O'Reilly had already heard. In Sydney, a friend from Barrel had told O'Reilly to look out for a certain batting prodigy from his hometown. Wingelow fielded first. Even though he was a spinner, O'Reilly opened the bowling. Why? Well, in the previous season's final against Mossvale, Wingelo had won by an innings, bowling Mossvale out for 56 and 151. In the first innings, O'Reilly had taken seven wickets, four of them bowled. In the second, O'Reilly had taken another seven wickets, this time all of them bowled. Clearly, he was in a different class. In he charged. Yes, charged. Bill was not your normal spinner. Tall, about one meter 88 or 6 foot 2 and athletic, he was close to medium pace and bounded in, full of aggression, arms windmilling fiercely at the crease as he propelled the ball invariably straight at the stumps. He spun it from leg to off, not prodigiously, but enough, and was developing a deadly hard to pick wrong that would spin from off to leg and bounce sharply. In the first over of the game, O'Reilly blasted a ball through the barrel opener's defences and onto his stumps. Another victim bowled. This would be a feature of O'Reilly's bowling throughout his career. He hit the stumps more often than any other bowler. Bowrell's number three walked into bat, the reason Bill had been hauled from the train. What a moment. It was Saturday the 9th of January 1926. Now, almost a century later, if you go to the Sydney Cricket Ground, you will see that four of the stands are named for cricketers, And two of those cricketers were about to meet for the first time, Bill O'Reilly and Don Bradman. O'Reilly was puzzled by Bradman's appearance. He described him as a diminutive figure and said, What struck me most about him was the difficulty he seemed to be having in taking normal steps as he approached. His pads seemed to reach right up to his navel. But O'Reilly then added, Still, he shaped up as though he knew what the game was all about and the expression on his face publicised the fact that he felt quite at home and was ready to cope with anything I had in store for him. Bradman began brilliantly, much to O'Reilly's consternation. My training as a prospective primary school teacher was supposed to have prepared me for dealing with the occasional hard case, but nothing could have prepared me for the confrontation with this particular youth. But with Bradman's score in the 20s, O'Reilly got his measure. He got a ball to lift and bite, and Bradman edged it to first slip to the captain, Selby Jeffrey. Jeffrey dropped the catch. Shortly after, O'Reilly recounts that he speared in his quicker ball, and Bradman edged it again, again straight to Jeffrey at first slip. And again the catch went down. Sorry, Bill, said Jeffrey. O'Reilly wrote, Who in the name of all that is holy could ever possibly hope to get away unscathed when Don Bradman had been given two lives? Bradman was impressed. He later wrote, Bill O'Reilly was by far the best bowler I had met up till then, and that O'Reilly's ability to turn a leg break with speed amazed me and kindled an admiration for his skill. Nevertheless, Bradman proceeded to obliterate the Wingelo attack. When stumps were drawn, the barrel scorecard read, Alf Stevens, bold O'Reilly 2, Sid Cubitt, bold O'Reilly 45, A.O. Pryor, Not out, 46. Bradman, not out, 234. And the total was two for 335. Bradman had batted just under three hours, and by the end it was a massacre, with 48 of Bradman's final 50 runs coming in boundaries, six fours and four sixes. Bill O'Reilly was mortified. He loved cricket and had thought he had plenty of ability. Bradman's innings had changed all that. I saw no hope ahead for me he wrote. All was gloom. I began to count my blessings in that I had other sports to choose from. Having been belted unmercifully by a schoolboy was a pill too bitter for me to swallow. My pride had been badly injured. The game continued the next Saturday, this time in Wingerlow, and O'Reilly was resigned to further punishment. He bowled the first ball of the day to Bradman. The ball fizzed towards leg stump, gripped and turned, and cannon into off stump. Bradman, bold O'Reilly, 234. In Bill's words, Suddenly I thought the grass around our windular ground began to look greener than ever it had done before. The birds began to sing. The sun shone becomingly. One ball changed my whole sporting outlook. Gone were the dismaying plans to give the game away forever. This was the beginning of a remarkable relationship between O'Reilly and Bradman. But it never became a friendship. O'Reilly later wrote, On the cricket field, Bradman and I had the greatest respect for each other. I certainly did for him, and I know he did for me. But I might as well come straight out with it and let you know that off the field, we had not much in common. You could say we did not like each other, but it would be closer to the truth to say we chose to have little to do with each other. I don't really think that this arose from the ego-laden encounters of our younger days. It was more the product of the chemistry arising from our different backgrounds. Don Bradman was a teetotaler, ambitious, conservative, and meticulous. I was outspoken and gregarious, an equally ambitious young man of Irish descent. As a postscript to this first encounter between the two, you'll recall that in the previous season's final against Mosvale, O'Reilly had been the star with 14 wickets. This season, Bowrell played Mosvale in the final, and as if just to outdo Bill, Bradman won the game for Bowerall with a score of exactly 300. The stunning performances by O'Reilly and Bradman could be dismissed as irrelevant, coming as they did in bush cricket – but both young men were about to make their mark on the Sydney cricket scene. Once the summer holidays were over in early 1926, Bill O'Reilly returned to Sydney to take up his first job as a teacher at Erskineville Primary Boys School. He battled through the winter, learning to teach, and come spring, he again intended to play for David Jones's Surrey Hills factory team in the Park Saturday morning cricket competition, just as he had done for the previous two seasons. He was in for a surprise. His teammates refused to let him play. "'Bill,' they said, "'we only let you play with us because you were broke and couldn't afford to pay grade cricket fees. Now you have a job. You can't waste your talent playing with us again.' Go on and try out for your local grade team. I find it endearing that this came as such a surprise to O'Reilly. He had won the competition's best bowler award each of the two previous seasons and was generally a confident and outspoken young man. But in his mind, grade cricket was the preserve of giants. He later wrote, Grade cricket always seemed to me to be far beyond my reach. I had built an aura around it in my imagination and he referred to grade players as men who seemed to me to live in an entirely different world from mine. Bill's teammates gave him a rousing farewell send-off on a night out in Surrey Hills, and then, with great fear and trepidation, he turned up to the Nets for North Sydney's first training session for the 1926-27 season, in his words, unknown and uninvited. As he approached the Nets, Bill felt a jolt of excitement as he saw Austin punch, Punch was one of the dominant figures of the grade scene and was often called up to the New South Wales Sheffield Shield side. More significantly, as a boy in the bush, O'Reilly had obsessed over the grade cricket scores from the Sydney papers, and Austin Punch had been his hero. O'Reilly determined instantly he wanted to bowl to Punch, if for no other reason than to put himself out of his misery. If Punch belted him everywhere, he would know he wasn't good enough. O'Reilly subtly slipped into the net in which Punch was batting and joined two others bowling to the champion. Things began well enough. Punch treated O'Reilly's first few balls with respect. Bill gained a modicum of confidence. The session continued. Punch continued to play O'Reilly quietly. Indeed, Bill began to notice that while Punch was handling the other bowlers with aplomb, he seemed to be taking extra care with O'Reilly's medium-paced spin. And then the moment came. O'Reilly landed one on the line of leg stump. It fizzed past the bat and knocked back Punch's off stump. Punch stared up at Bill in shock. According to Bill, though, he was not half as surprised as I was. To Bill's joy, as soon as he'd finished batting, Austin Punch sought him out. He told Bill that to turn the ball at such pace was so rare that he thought Bill had a fine future ahead of him in grade cricket. The two instantly became friends and remained so for the next 59 years until Punch died in 1985, aged 91. And later that afternoon, any last feelings of being out of place in grade cricket that O'Reilly might have felt were banished. Not only did North Sydney invite him to play for their club, they slotted him straight into second grade. The season began on Saturday, the 2nd of October 1926. North Sydney's second-grade side played Petersham at beautiful North Sydney Oval. It was not an auspicious start for Bill. He was out for a duck as North Sydney were rolled for 154. But then things picked up. Petersham began their innings, and Bill had an instant impact. He clean-bowled the Petersham opener, Francis, for four, and then caught and bowled their number three, Langsworth, for three. At the close of play, Petersham were bossing the game on three for 116, but O'Reilly had the fine figures of two for 30. The game would be completed the following Saturday, but in between was the Monday of the October long weekend, which would see round two played in full. And it was on this day that Bill got his lucky break. North Sydney's second grade side travelled to Chatswood Oval to take on Gordon. Bill opened the bowling. One of the Gordon openers, Bill Gerders, had moved to 13. And the next ball, in O'Reilly's words, I struck perhaps the most important blow in my young cricketing life. In he charged, and as he so often was to do, O'Reilly landed his medium-paced delivery on leg stump, it ripped across and hit off. Gerdes was stunned. As he walked off, he spoke briefly to the incoming number three batsman for Gordon, who just so happened to be Johnny Moyes. Moyes was a towering figure in Australian cricket. A former first-class cricketer, now 33, he was a fine player, but more importantly, a state selector and the most prominent cricket journalist in Sydney. A fielder from North Sydney overheard the conversation between Gertis and Moyes as they crossed paths, and he relayed it to Bill. Watch out, Johnny. He turned that one sharply from the leg, said Gertis. Moyes apparently replied, You must have been dreaming. He couldn't have. Not at that pace. The scorebook shows that Moyes proceeded to top score with 88, caught Lampert, Bold Thomas, as Gordon amassed six declared for 307. O'Reilly's figures were three for 97, not earth-shattering, but not too bad to take half the wickets to fall. Crucially, though, his bowling made a big impact on Johnny Moyes. Moyes complimented O'Reilly several times and later in the day interviewed him about his unusual grip. There was probably not a better person in Australia to have impressed. And it never should have happened. Moyes was a first grader. He'd been sensationally dropped to second grade by the Gordon selectors for the first two rounds of the season, but strong scores immediately had him restored to the top flight. The following Saturday, somewhat confusingly, saw the conclusion of the round one fixtures. O'Reilly took three more wickets to add to the two he'd taken on day one. And so his figures in his first two second grade games were five for 58 and three for 97. And that was the end of his second grade career. For the next round... O'Reilly was picked in North Sydney's first grade side. He attributed this in no small part to having impressed Moyes. While all this was happening to O'Reilly, similarly momentous events were taking place in Don Bradman's life. The state selectors sent him a letter inviting him to attend a practice session at the Sydney Cricket Ground on Monday, the 11th of October. It was actually a session meant to unearth new bowling talent and indeed every other player invited was a bowler playing in Sydney first grade. But Bradman's record in the bush had piqued the curiosity of the state selectors. And despite never having batted on turf before, Bradman made quite an impression. The Sydney Morning Herald got his initial wrong, but was nevertheless complimentary. Jay Bradman, a young batsman from Bowral was also present, and his display was so impressive that H. Cranny of the Cumberland Club invited him to play with the club. As it turned out, the deal fell through, as Bradman couldn't afford the costs of travelling to and from Sydney each week, and Cumberland decided it couldn't afford to pay for them, a decision I'm sure they came to regret. So Bradman continued just playing in Bowral for the time being anyway. Five days later for Bill, 16th of October 1926 was a red-letter day as he made his first-grade debut against Balmain at Birchgrove Oval. It was a quiet day as North Sydney batted, Bill making just three. The next week, he picked up three wickets, one in Balmain's first innings and the only two to fall as Balmain followed on, all three bowled. But it was to be in Bill's second game in first grade, on the 30th of October and the 6th of November, that he revealed his true ability. North Sydney were beaten by Mossman at Mossman Oval, but O'Reilly starred, taking 5 for 72 in Mossman's total of 210. This performance got the attention of several newspapers. Back in those days, grade games were covered in detail in the press. The Sun wrote, North Sydney has indeed a find in W.J. O'Reilly, a fast medium bowler with a distinct leg break and an occasional ball which comes in from the off. All who have played against O'Reilly praise his bowling and the North Sydney club consider that in him it has a cult of exceptional promise and who may prove to be the bowler New South Wales is looking for. Things were now moving at pace. A total unknown less than two months earlier, O'Reilly was now invited to join the New South Wales practice sessions for promising young players on Mondays at the Sydney Cricket Ground. The very same session that Don Bradman had so impressed at a few weeks earlier. Again, O'Reilly attributes this momentous development to the influence of Johnny Moyes. Bill's first net session at the SCG was to be on Monday the 15th of November. But before this immense opportunity, on the Saturday, there was the first week of round five of first grade. And once again, O'Reilly made the headlines. North Sydney's opponents, Sydney University, made 226, but it would have been much more were it not for O'Reilly. He bowled 16 eight-ball overs and took four for 49. O'Reilly again succeeds, was the headline in the Sun. And under the headline, Good Bowler, the Daily Telegraph wrote, In these days of mediocre bowling, it is pleasing to note the success of W. O'Reilly. Good judges of the game who have seen him bowl predict that he will go a long way. Already, he has impressed prominent batsmen who have played against him. And so to Monday, the 15th of November, 1926. Just 23 days after his first ever bowl in first grade, O'Reilly arrived at the SCG to be examined by the New South Wales state selectors and former international stars. And he delivered. His bowling created a real buzz of excitement and even confusion as cricket experts tried to work out how he could spin the ball so much at such speed. Newspapers of the day had a cascading style of headlines from large to small font above stories. On page 5 of the Daily Telegraph on the Tuesday, in quite large font for the day, it read Cricketers on trial. New bowler. O'Reilly impresses. Internationals puzzled. One such international was Dr Herbert Horden. Once regarded as the best spin bowler in the world, his career had been brilliant but brief, cut short by World War I and his focus on his medical career. He was a powerful and respected figure in New South Wales cricket in 1926, and he was amazed at what he saw from Bill. As always, it was O'Reilly's ability to bowl leg breaks at such speed that caused the surprise. In the words of the Telegraph, Dr Horden said it was the most extraordinary thing he had witnessed in a bowler. Look at it, he exclaimed. The Telegraph added, Mr. A. G. Moys, one of the state selectors, has a high opinion of O'Reilly as a bowler. I played against him recently, he said, and I know what he can do. When I went into bat, I was told by the outgoing batsman that he had been bowled with a leg break. I did not believe it, but soon realized that it was a fact. On the day, O'Reilly also received some well-meaning advice that he considered diabolical. Former Australian leg-spinning star, then current New South Wales player, journalist and cartoonist and state selector, Arthur Maley approached him and recommended a change in his grip for the leg break. Bill's answer revealed that the uncertainty he'd been feeling at the start of his grade career had well and truly receded. This advice appalled me, he wrote. I thanked Mr Maley for the great interest he had taken in me, but went on to say that I thought it was much too late to be fiddling about with an action which even by that time had become second nature to me. Looking back now, I can imagine the shock that Arthur must have received. Here was a callow kid of 20 spurning advice from a proven world beater. This actually did sour the early relationship between O'Reilly and Maley, but in time they were to become great friends. To cap off an unforgettable day, as Bill left, he was approached by a wizened old man who revealed himself to be Charlie Turner. Then in his 60s, Turner had been a great off-spinner of the 1880s and 90s. He took 993 first-class wickets at the incredible average of 14.3, and on the unreliable wickets of his era, his nickname of Terror was appropriate. In 2007, to celebrate 150 years of New South Wales cricket, an all-time team was chosen, and Turner was in it. So too were Bradman and O'Reilly. Turner told Bill to ignore Maley's advice and said that Bill's grip and his own had been the same – despite the fact that they'd spun the ball in different directions. And the following day's papers also contained admiring quotes from Turner about young Bill's potential. It was heady stuff, and all less than two months since Bill had planned on simply playing another season of cricket for David Jones's Surrey Hills factory team in the Park Saturday morning competition. The newspapers were now keen to discover more about O'Reilly. A few days later, The Sun revealed his athletic prowess under the headline, An All-Rounder! And it is worth mentioning that O'Reilly could well have pursued a career in athletics. He was a superb shot putter and high jumper, but it was the triple jump in which he really excelled. The previous year, 1925, Bill had won the New South Wales Championship at the event, jumping 14 metres and 35 centimetres. Bill didn't enter in 1926, and the event was won by Nick Winter. Winter jumped 14 metres and 48 centimetres, 13 centimetres further than Bill, This is no disgrace to Bill, though, because Winter was the reigning Olympic champion. He'd won gold for Australia in Paris 1924, with a world-record triple jump of 15 metres and 53 centimetres. Bill's distance would have seen him come sixth had he been at the Olympics. Back to cricket. The next grade game saw O'Reilly take four wickets against Manly, but his rise to prominence was overshadowed by another performance – St George had offered to pay Bradman's way to and from Bowerall each week, and given Bradman had been in Sydney playing in a series of country week matches, he had stayed on and made his great cricket debut on Saturday the 28th of November. Slotted straight into first grade against a strong Petersham attack, Bradman belted 110. The two youngsters were rising rapidly. At this point in the season, O'Reilly had 16 first grade wickets at an average of 176 Eighth best in the competition. And as luck would have it, the very next game saw North Sydney drawn to play St George. O'Reilly versus Bradman. Sadly, the match was an anti North Sydney batted on the first week, making four for 330, and Bill didn't get a bat. And week two was rained off. At this point, the grade season paused for an extended Christmas break. But 1926 had a sting in the tail in store for both O'Reilly and Bradman. They had only played seven first-grade games between them, O'Reilly 5 and Bradman 2, but nevertheless, on Wednesday the 29th of December 1926, the Sun newspaper had a small article on page four headlined, Cricket, 2nd 11s, home side chosen. The following team has been selected to represent New South Wales against the Victorian 2nd 11 at the Sydney Cricket Ground on New Year's Day. And in among the playing 11, the names D. Bradman and W.J. O'Reilly appear. The Daily Telegraph welcomed the news. Under the headline, Strong Side Chosen, it wrote, It is pleasing to see O'Reilly, the North Sydney medium-fast leg-break bowler included, and Bradman, the barrel cult who is now playing for St George, is also being given a chance to show his worth in first-class company. So, as 1926 drew to a close, O'Reilly and Bradman had risen from obscurity to being just one step away from Sheffield Shield Cricket. And that ends part one of this podcast. I hope you'll tune back in for the next episode. 1927 sees further dramatic advances for O'Reilly and for Bradman. But just as Bill is set for the big time, he's cruelly and in his mind deliberately transferred to a teaching appointment in the bush. Over the three years that followed, O'Reilly had to watch on from afar as Bradman became arguably the most famous person in the British Empire. But when he finally got his chance again, O'Reilly rose once more as the rise and rise of Bill O'Reilly continues.